Think Hannibal and you think of elephants and victories against Rome in Italy. But what about the Iberian Peninsula? This provided a foundation for everything Hannibal could do and did in Italy. In this episode, I'll be looking at how Carthage came to occupy Iberia and how it furnished Hannibal with the men, means and tactics for taking on Rome. Join me for Costa del Carthage. What have the Romans ever done for us? Hi, and thanks for clicking. My name's Neil, and you're listening to the Ancient History Hound podcast. If you're a new listener, thanks for giving this a go, and welcome back to those returning listeners as well. I looked at my download locations map recently, and assuming it can be trusted, I seem to be popping up all over the place, which is great to know. In case you didn't know, I also blog and tweet. My blog straight website is ancientblogger.com, and my Twitter is at ancientblogger. I've got loads of stuff on my website, which is all ancient history themed, And it's got links to my Facebook, Instagram and YouTube channel. I've come to the point where I feel the need to tackle Hannibal. As ever, I wanted to find a slightly different angle on it. And as I'm going on a holiday to Spain this year, I thought it might be interesting to have a little dig around into how important Spain or the Iberian Peninsula was. For all you fans of Hannibal's battles, I'll be touching upon them. Though I need to elaborate on how the Iberian troops were used. Much of this podcast will be unwrapping the Carthaginian expansion into Iberia and how we ended up with Hannibal operating from there. Before I get started, I should refer to the main sources I use for this. Obviously, there was Polybius and Livy. I prefer Polybius out of the two when it comes to Hannibal because he was closer to the time and seemed to have a greater understanding of military matters. But Livy is always useful. If nothing, his slightly bizarre updates about statues bleeding, talking animals, and even a possible UFO sighting does make his slightly dry accounts more fun. More modern reading largely involved Professor Serge Lancel in his book on Hannibal and Carthage. Professor Lancel is an expert on Carthage, and if you're interested in this topic, it's worth seeing if you can get a copy of his books. There's also the Stanford iTunes U lectures on Hannibal, led by Patrick Hunt. They're recordings of lectures, but very, very worthwhile nonetheless, if Hannibal is your thing. I also need to mention a book by Richard Miles called Carthage Must Be Destroyed. This book is a cracking read and brought to my attention a number of themes concerning Carthage and Hannibal I simply hadn't been aware of. For example, the cultural propaganda war he waged with Rome, which involved Hercules, of all people. One final thing before I begin. It's probably worth either getting a map of Spain or simply familiarising yourself with it. The important parts are southern and southeast Spain, places like Cadiz, Segunto, which is just up the coast from Valencia, Cartagena, Toledo, and the Rio Tinto and Ebro rivers. To start with then, I need to address the literal elephant in the room. Why Spain, or as I'll refer to it from now on, Iberia exactly? To answer that, I need to start just after the First Punic War had ended. The First Punic War ended in 241 BCE. It involved Carthage, a mighty commercial superpower, and a cocky upstart called Rome. Initially, Carthage had been a Phoenician colony established at the end of the 9th century BCE. The Phoenicians were incredibly good at two things, trade and sailing. Though they hailed from the Levant, specifically around what is now Lebanon, the Phoenicians had set up trading points across the Mediterranean, Cadiz for example, as well as on Cyprus, Sardinia, Sicily and North Africa. Much like a dot-to-dot puzzle, 
These can be linked by various trading routes. So it was possible to sail along one route from the Levant to southern Iberia and then back along a slightly different course, which made these routes very effective. Carthage grew and became a standalone city, though it retained its Phoenician roots through religious practices and general culture. Initially, Carthage's big rival were the Greek colonies on Sicily, but then along came Rome, and this is where it went all very badly for them. In 241 BCE, Carthage wasn't exactly a happy place. It had been beaten by Rome in a series of largely naval encounters, and Rome forced a treaty upon them. The Treaty of Lutatius was negotiated in 241 BCE and required Carthage to pay a huge war indemnity, evacuate Sicily and not make war on any Roman allies. The last point is worth making note of, as we'll come back to it later. The Catch-22 situation Carthage now faced was a massive bill, but nowhere to pay it. By driving Carthage from Sicily, it removed a major source of income. Carthage had a large bill to pay and no way of paying it. A more immediate concern was the large number of mercenaries Carthage had employed who were now arriving back to North Africa and, to be fair, demanding payment. The outcome was a war Carthage had with the mercenaries, and this was won by a general called Hamilcar, though you might know him as Hannibal's father, and he's someone we'll get to know in the process of this episode. Hamilcar had fought in Sicily and constantly been a thorn in the side of the Romans, possibly one of the few good stories they had to come out of the war. He was called upon to deal with the mercenaries who were revolting, and I'm sure there's a joke there somewhere, and it got nasty, very nasty indeed. Hamilcar's victory over the mercenaries was at the Battle of the Saw, and though this name comes from the geography of the location where the battle was fought, it's quite apt, because it was a massacre. Carthage is now free to consider the situation it found itself in. It needed money, and it needed it fast. If this was a moment in a film, it would be the point where someone comes up with a plan which might just work, and this plan took the form of southern Iberia. We'll never know the exact motivations of Hamilcar when it came to this. The Carthaginian political system could be as sharp and nasty as its Roman counterpart. With the war lost, scapegoats were sought, and given that Hamilcar's faction, the Barkids, had been influential in the political scene, they drew a fair bit of heat. Perhaps Hamilcar wanted away from a government which had surrendered as he fought against the odds, and after proving his worth against the mercenaries, you might imagine him cutting a sour and dejected figure. Where the bells had chimed for Dick Whittington, Hamilcar may have heard the sound of coins jangling from southern Iberia. Here was somewhere that he could make his mark and re-glorify Carthage, away from Rome and the Carthaginian political scene. In 237 BCE, Hamilcar took his nine-year-old son Hannibal, his son-in-law Hasdrubal, and a small force, possibly of around 20,000 men, and made his way to Cadiz. This was no mean feat, Travelling across North Africa and then across to Gibraltar, the likely route is around 1,600 kilometres. If you were to replicate this feat, walking as the crow flies from San Francisco, you'd end up in Denver, Colorado. Alternatively, if you walked it from San Diego, you'd find yourself in Abilene, Texas. Where we speculate over Hamilcar's rationale for committing to this journey, there was one function his trip served, to commercialise southern Iberia and generate much-needed cash. It would have been for this purpose that Carthage wanted him to go. It also helped to soothe any political tensions there. The man, most able, and with an army, was out the way and could serve the city from afar. The cash would come in the form of coin, minted from the extensive silver and mineral deposits of the Sierra Moreno and Rio Tinto Valley. 
This was well known to the Carthaginians. Their trading connections in southern Iberian peninsula had existed for centuries by this point. The Phoenicians had established trading posts dotted along the southern coast of Iberia. Some of them, for example, you might know. Cadiz I mentioned, but there was Malaga and Gibraltar. Mercenaries from the local tribes had fought for Carthage. So when Hamilcar arrived at Cadiz in 237 BCE, he wasn't standing on enemy territory. And that's not to say he wouldn't have his work cut out consolidating power, but it did mean that there was a cultural framework in place which gave him solid footing there. As I alluded to earlier, the mineral wealth of the Sierra Moreno mountains and the Rio Tinto Valley was huge. Mines had existed here for centuries, and these were rejuvenated in part with more recent mining technologies, but equally as much through Carthaginian mastery of large-scale commercial and industrial projects. Southern Iberia was host of various tribes who boasted a strong military tradition, and this took the form in raiding parties between them. This wasn't a framework in which large-scale developments could take place or get a foothold. And I say this because one way of viewing what happened might have been that Carthage entered a world of savages who they soon modernised. Now, new technologies might have been brought to the region by Hamilcar, but what made the difference was that there was stability and there was manpower that, there are, that the Carthaginians were able to apply. Stability was always a balancing act between a stick and a carrot. Some tribes were happy to upgrade their relationships with Carthage through Hamilcar. Others needed a bit more of the stick, but he was always the consummate politician. So when he beat one tribe, he took 3,000 of the men and signed them up into his army. Afforded this stability, the mines could work more efficiently, and these were soon causing the proverbial Carthaginian coffers to swell. Pliny noted in his time that the mines of Castulo, or modern-day Linares, produced 225 pounds of silver a day. I did a quick search on the internet, and in modern terms, that's around $52,000. Diodorus Siculus reckoned 57 pounds was possible for three days' work, and that was for anyone with a basic knowledge of mining. Diodorus also painted a wonderful picture of the Iberian mountains as so full of silver that forest fires on them will cause streams of molten silver to run down them. Not only that, but the early Phoenicians were so successful at mining here that they would strip the lead from their anchors and replace it with silver for the voyage back. You see, pimp my ride isn't anything new. Modern estimates of just how much silver was mined are speculative at best. I've read one figure that gave 46 tonnes a year. That said, we can understand the amount of activity from ice cores taken at Greenland. In a set of samples taken, 70% of the lead was identified as coming from the Rio Tinto area. It was also dated to between 150 BCE and AD 50, so that's after Hamilcar, but it does give us a slightly different perspective on the size of industry here. Coin wasn't just minted in silver. Bronze coins were also used, and this points to lower units required for local markets. This activity was stimulating economic growth in southern Iberia, which would have a knock-on elsewhere in the Mediterranean. It was also allowing Carthage to repay its debt, and possibly a bit too easily, as in 231 BCE, Roman ambassadors came to visit and see what was going on. Hamilcar reassured them that all of this was purely to allow Rome to be paid the debt owed to it, but I'm not sure Hamilcar expected Rome to believe this, and I don't think Rome really believed it either. To facilitate the organisation of southern and southeast Iberia, Hamilcar built a new city called Acreluque. It's not known exactly where this was. Some have pointed to Alicante, and others, 
that Carthago Nova, which is modern-day Cartagena, was in fact a redevelopment and extension of it. But what Hamilcar now had was a sizable economy, a reliable standing army, and a capital city. At this point, I want to mention Hannibal, because he would have been witnessing and experiencing all of this. Thus far, he had travelled as a boy to a foreign territory and watched as his father nourished diplomatic relations and won several battles against local tribes. He would have grown to appreciate the need for both to be employed by a successful general. Hannibal was praised for being comfortable in and on campaign. For example, he slept as a common soldier and was happy to bear the hardships. And I suspect that being the son of Hamilcar would have meant any sense of glamping was truly out of the question. In an anecdote told by Hannibal himself, he recalled how he'd been asked to swear at a sacrifice by his father that he'd always be an enemy of Rome. And this took place when he was nine and about to leave Carthage. Hamilcar couldn't know exactly how events would unfold, but I suspect he anticipated the sound of battle with Rome, if not by himself, then by Hannibal. In order to make that a reality, he had to equip his son with the lessons only the life on campaign could teach, because he was teaching his son how to command, and all about soldiery from a very early age. This education was to end in 228 BCE, when Hamilcar died on campaign against the Oritani, a tribe in modern-day La Mancha. Whilst you might have expected Hannibal to take charge, he was still too young, and Hasdrubal, his uncle, now was in command. Where Hamilcar had shown an ability in both the military and diplomacy, Hasdrubal, or Hasdrubal the Fair, is largely associated with the latter, and you might argue that this was dictated by the needs of the moment. Hamilcar had won a large pseudo-kingdom, and this could be unpicked at whim. Hasdrubal took his revenge on the Ratani, and then subdued their lands. But around the same time, he married into the local aristocracy, thus cementing things further. Hasdrubal also built Nova Carthago, which became the new centre for Carthage and Iberia. As I mentioned earlier, this is modern-day Cartagena, and possibly was a revamp of the old capital Acroluque. Livy described it as the citadel, the granary, treasury and armoury of the Carthaginians. The last two descriptions are particularly apt. With reinforcements from Carthage, the army Hasdrubal commanded numbered nearly 60,000. And as for the mines, while well, the new ones built near Nevada Carthago could knock out 25,000 drachma a day in the later Roman period. Speaking of Rome, in 226 BCE, another embassy from there arrived at Nova Carthago. The objective of all of this was to provide Carthage with the proverbial line in the sand. They were not to cross the river Ebro, which, if you had the chance to check out as per my suggestion at the beginning of the podcast, ran across the northeast of Iberia. If you were to travel up the coast, it was around 430 kilometres north. So, by no means was this a line in the sand drawn particularly close to where Hasdrubal was operating. It's possible that the motivation for this was that the Greek colonies to the north, in southern Gaul and in northeast Iberia, were feeling the pinch and concerned about Carthaginian expansion up the coast. Rome at the time had the large hairy problem of Celtic tribes in northern Italy. Set against this more immediate concern, a general boundary was given to Carthage not to cross, which might reassure the Greek colonies which had called on Rome without it having to commit to any grand campaign. In or around 221 BCE, Hasdrubal was assassinated. This left Hannibal acclaimed by the troops and being given sole command. At this point, he had been exposed to every facet of generalship, 
diplomacy, logistics and command be presented to him through Hamilcar and Hasdrubal. We all know where this goes. Hannibal declares war on Rome and marches across the Alps. Yet this wasn't immediate. The following year or two was spent expanding northwest, which included the successful capture of Monde Salamanca. The advance into this area, far from the areas he'd controlled, caused a counterattack from some of the tribes he'd beaten. This resulted in a confrontation near Toledo, which I'll go into later, as I find much of Hannibal's later genius as president on the battlefield there. The final point to pick up on before I look what troops Hannibal recruited from Iberia is Saguntum. Saguntum is modern-day Sagunto, which is about 30 kilometres up the coast from Valencia. This is often cited as the trigger for war between Carthage and Rome. The argument being is that Rome had instructed Carthage not to attack the town, and by doing so, they brought war upon themselves. As an aside, I don't fully agree with this quite simplistic notion. True, it's a great narrative device which ignores the complexities of the situation as well as some of the contradictions within it. The attack did cause war to break out, but laying it solely as the cause of Hannibal's attack and sack of the town misses how both Rome and Carthage played this out. We need to start with the Treaty of Lutatius dating to the end of the First Punic War. One of the provisions was that Carthage wasn't to make war on any ally of Rome. Neither Saguntum or Iberia are mentioned, which makes perfect sense, as Iberia hadn't had Carthage's full attention at that time. Then there's the embassy Hasdrubal received in 226 BCE, where a line in the sand was drawn, and that line being the Ebro River. The obvious message behind this was that Rome was stating anything below the Ebro was fair game for Carthage. This included Saguntum, which is 160 kilometres south of it. There's no evidence that the embassy had a caveat which included Saguntum, and this leads Professor Lancel to propose a scenario wherein Saguntum had internal strife after 226 BCE with a pro-Carthage faction being overwhelmed by a pro-Roman one. Saguntum then asked Rome for assistance against the Carthaginians, who had lost any influence in their town and realised they would soon be under attack by the Carthaginians. By attacking Saguntum, Hannibal hadn't violated the terms of the 226 BCE embassy, and it's hard to see how the Treaty of Lutatius applies here. Livy does give it a go, and tries to argue that the treaty could apply to future allies, such as Saguntum, but I'm not really convinced by this. Livy also includes the famous embassy sent to Carthage as a result. The Romans wanted to know if Hannibal's actions were state policy, and if Carthage will send Hannibal to them for punishment. The Carthaginian response is that it's none of their business, and good luck on getting Hannibal. They also berate Rome for making an agreement in 226 BCE which wasn't passed by them. Rome didn't look good in any of this. The senator Fabius held a fold of his toga and stated that in this he had war or peace and asked the Carthaginian senate to choose. The response was the lines of meh and Fabius replied okay it's war. This drama is a gift to the historian. It's a nice piece of tension and a mic drop moment. I think it also shows that Rome wanted war. Carthage had given a sound response, but Rome ignores it, and it could have saved time by having Fabius give the ultimatum as soon as he arrived. But let's imagine Carthage had said, fair enough, we'll get Hannibal for you, or Carthage had denounced his actions. I think the same outcome would have played out. The embassy was as much a facade as anything. It just needed to happen, so Rome could claim that all avenues had been exhausted. In fairness to both Rome and Carthage, 
neither side could back down over Saguntum. Rome's reputation was crucial and it needed to maintain prestige. As an example, Livy gives an account of Roman ambassadors touring Iberia shortly after the embassy and trying to win support there. Though one tribe defected, the Volcani gave a damning indictment. Rome might try somewhere that hadn't heard about Saguntum because anyone who has will know how impotent Rome was in defending her allies. It's what was known as responsa macre, or sententiola non infoesta, which are both Latin for sick burn, apparently. Thanks to Philippe the Peep and Sicilisi on Twitter for those suggestions, by the way, and apologies for my awful pronunciation. For Carthage, handing Saguntum over to Rome, or even Hannibal, was never going to happen. In the first instance, it would have had huge consequences in Iberia, most likely leading to the unravelling of what they'd established there, and at the back of the mind of many a Carthaginian centre, I fancy that there would have been the memory of Sardinia, which they'd have been allowed to keep following the Treaty of Lutatius, but then had been taken from them by Rome simply because, well, Rome fancied it. Back then, Rome had even invented charges to justify what they did. I want to get back to Hannibal now. We are largely at the end of considering him through the scope of Iberia, as now he was mustering forces ahead of the march. But I want to pick up on an earlier point I made about a battle he fought near Toledo, and also tie up a couple of loose ends concerning how Saguntum might have influenced the decision which he has always been criticised for, namely not taking Rome. So roll back a few years, and it's before Saguntum. Hannibal would look to expand northwest, as I mentioned. He had taken Salamanca. And though he had initially had some success, it's possible he advanced a bit too far as he faced a revolt in his rear and he was cut off from safer territory in the southeast. The forces were likely those he'd recently conquered and they caught up with him in the lands of the Capitani, who were based in the Misita Central, a plateau which includes modern-day Toledo. After being attacked, Hannibal reorganised his troops and retreated across the river Tagus. He then set up camp just back from the river as he wanted the enemy to cross and as they did so, he hit them with his cavalry, the horses providing their riders with firm footing. I also suspect the Numidians were given a situation much akin to shooting fish in a barrel. And any who made it across the river had to get up front and personal with around 40 elephants. Hannibal's expertise is evident here. Being able to organise a controlled retreat in enemy territory underlines his excellent leadership qualities. And then there's the trap. At Trebia, Hannibal invited the Roman forces to come at him across a river and then hit them whilst doing so. And at Trasimene, the element of surprise, as well as drawing the enemy onto him, was crucial to his victory. What he displays is an understanding of using geographical features to his advantage and also the enemy's impetuous nature. I can give a bit more leeway in this instance, as the enemy he faced cannot have considered chasing him down a risk. In Italy, however, Hannibal often plays the Roman generals like the proverbial piano. As excellent as he was, Hannibal has been criticised. Possibly the most common form this takes is that after Cannae, he didn't take Rome. I found this an unfair criticism from the outset. Siege warfare at this time required planning and lots of resources. It also demanded expertise. I don't see how he could ever lay siege to Rome successfully. How would he prevent the supply of the city via the Tiber without a flea? How would he storm the walls exactly? Placing your army outside a city often left you highly vulnerable to a counter-attack. Saguntum was smaller than Rome and it took eight months with a sound logistical supply line in place. 
Scale this up and remove the supply line. And what you're left with is a task Hannibal had no resources to undertake. And I wonder if his experience of Saguntum informed this. Ironically, what Hannibal had learned from his time in Iberia was that making alliances was highly effective. And perhaps this is why he pursued a policy of trying to unpick Rome's allies from them in the south of Italy. How Hannibal thought in his decision-making in Italy is a topic in itself, so I'll leave it here. What I want to do next is further underline how Iberia enabled Hannibal by looking at the infantry and the cavalry he recruited there. The Iberian Peninsula had long been a place in which tribes had made war against each other, as I mentioned earlier, and the result of this was a well-drilled pool of infantry, which the Carthaginians would initially face in some places, but also later draw from. Broadly speaking, the Iberian infantry fell into two main classes, the lighter Catrati and the heavier Scutari. Both soldiers were named after their shield types. The Catrati had the Catra, a small round shield about 60 centimetres in diameter, I suppose it's akin to a buckler. Being light infantry, there's little surprise that the armour was minimal, perhaps it was leather, and they might have a bronze or leather helmet. For light infantry, mobility was the key, and a Catra would use javelins and the famous Iberian Falcata if things got up close and personal. It has been argued that the Iberian cavalry could have carried a Catra into battle, which would greatly enhance their mobility. The other main infantry type was the Scutari, who carried a flat oval shield. It's not wholly agreed upon as to their exact panoply or kit, but I'm sure many had some form of armour, be it leather or stiffened fabric, in the style of linothorax. Whenever I write a piece on my blog or podcast about warfare in antiquity, I remind myself that standardisation in armies at this time wasn't something you'd regularly encounter. There had been a tradition in Iberia, in some tribes, where nobles had worn elaborate chess pieces, and chainmail is even mentioned. So if so, and you had access to this, you might wear that item. And of course, things could change during your time with an army. The Carthaginians fought at Cannae with armour they'd taken from the Romans after their success at Trasimene. Point being, was that you couldn't rely on a standard look as a decider for infantry as you might do in the later periods. That said, there were exceptions to the rules. Some infantry, usually Celts or Gauls, fought naked. More terrifying than a huge naked bearded chap screaming at you whilst armed was if he wore trousers. Well, it was if you were Roman. With these variables in mind, it now seems quite logical to have the shields as an identifier. In the context of helmets, the Montefortino type, or variations of it, seem to be the most common used, and it's plausible that the Catrati wore these as well. This was a simple bowl-type design with cheap pieces. It offered good all-round protection from both sword blows and spear points. But what was important for Scutari was their offensive equipment. To start with, javelins would have featured, including the Soliferum, which ranged from between 1.5 metres and 2 metres in length. What made this unique and terrifying is that a section of it was often wrapped in fabric which had been soaked in pitch. This could then be lit and voila, you have a huge flaming pointy object to throw at someone. For a sword, there was the Falcata, which I find quite a beautiful blade. That is, if it doesn't put me on a watch list somewhere. I saw some in Cordoba, and if you get the chance, find one online and see what I mean. The blade was about 13 to 20 inches long. And though primarily a chopping weapon, the point was sharpened so it could be used in a thrust. Now we come to possibly the most interesting weapon the Iberians had. It didn't rely on pyrotechnics or a cool design. It was as dangerous to thrust with as to chop with. 
and made an impression both literally and figuratively on the Romans to the extent that they did what Rome did best. Nick the idea and improve it. It was the gladius. Now before I have a swarm of irked military historians pick me up on this, allow me this day of execution. I mean the gladius hispaniensis, of course the so-called Spanish sword. Gladius is a general word meaning sword, and this has caused confusion when it's also used to refer to a specific type of sword. Though there's plenty of debate as to how the sword evolved into the iconic one the legionaries of the imperial period carried, it's largely agreed that the Iberian troops introduced the Romans to the predecessor or ancestor. Now if low production values and a face born for podcasting is your thing, I can recommend my vlog on the Gladius as I unwrap much of all of this. You can find it on YouTube, just type in ancient blogger as two words or go to ancientblogger.com and use my YouTube link there. As we now have a basic understanding of the two common infantry types used, we might think on how Hannibal utilised them. The first thing you need to do is throw away any preconceived notions that the Iberian infantry were an undisciplined and skittish bunch. They weren't. The Iberians recruited by Hannibal were used to fighting and they were also well disciplined. We know this because Hannibal relied on them a lot, often when they were used as the force which fixed the enemy and allowed something awful to happen to them as a result. A very good example of this was at Cannae. Much of the genius at Cannae was in the use of the concave centre, which bulged out towards the Romans, and this was where the Iberian heavier infantry were located. They were given the task of allowing the dense Roman force to push them back slowly. As they did so, the Roman bloc would push past the Carthaginian wings, which would then turn inwards and lock onto the flanks of the Romans and begin the slaughter. If you're interested in learning how this happened using cutting-edge CGI, I can only suggest my vlog on the Battle of Cannae. The victory at Cannae pivoted on the Romans advancing too far on the Carthaginian line, or into it, and to do this required the Iberian infantry to slowly retreat under intense pressure. I find this drill in itself quite incredible. Infantry lines weren't meant to bend or buckle. Success was always about them advancing and forcing the momentum, not receiving it, but this was critical at Cannae, and there was simply wasn't a way an inexperienced or less able unit could have accomplished this. The Iberians had been used at Trasimene in a more traditional manner, though again they were asked to fix the Roman column. I did a YouTube vlog on it, I'll just leave it there. The Romans advancing along the lake shore met the Iberians and African infantry. At this moment the Carthaginian forces swept down the hills and onto the Romans. It was imperative that they weren't allowed a way out, and with the exception of a small Roman force, the Iberians, and to be fair the African infantry, kept the door firmly shut. It's arguable that the Iberian infantry were the most trusted by Hannibal, or certainly trusted to a great extent. He had experience fighting against them, so knew what they were all about. Incorporating them into his army was a logistical advantage because it gave him more soldiers, and very capable ones at that. There's also a caveat. The Iberian peninsula, as we have seen, was crucial for Hannibal and for Carthage. The resources in men and coin it provided made the invasion of Italy possible. It was therefore important to keep secure. What better way than taking a large number of his troops and having them serve under a Carthaginian? In that way, they were bound to him. They had an allegiance which might serve to keep things calm back in Iberia. But Hannibal didn't just take Iberian infantry with him. There was also cavalry which he recruited. When the subject of cavalry and Hannibal comes up, the immediate association normally made is with the Numidian cavalry. 
And there's nothing wrong with that really, because the Numidian cavalry was excellent at what it did. But the Iberian cavalry was vital to Hannibal, for as much as what it could do, as what it allowed the Numidian cavalry to be. Let me explain. It's easy to fall into the trap of imagining cavalry in antiquity as you might do the knights of the medieval period, perhaps not in the sense of wearing heavy armour, but in that they would charge in with swords held aloft. The Numidian cavalry was the exact opposite of this. The horses were small and very quick. The riders would dart in and around the enemy throwing javelins at them. This might not sound particularly effective when you contrast it with what you may have imagined, but just think about it for a moment. You're fighting on foot and you're advancing on the enemy or you engage with them. Suddenly, a hail of javelins arrives all around you. There's very little you can do except hope that one hasn't got your name on it. But in the meantime, you're trying to focus on enemy ranks who are either fighting or about to meet. Much of the ancient battle experience was couched in the psychological. The javelins might be picking off those around you, and the instigator of many a route panic is perhaps starting to take a hold on you. Even the most experienced veteran wouldn't want this situation. It made what was a very dangerous scenario even worse. The Numidians were therefore quite a specialised unit, and to use them correctly you needed a reliable cavalry force to meet the enemy head-on and do what we would describe as a melee engagement. And the Iberians were very good at this. The Iberian cavalry seems to have fought in two ways. The first is as you might expect, namely on horseback, but they also seemed to have fought on foot. At Cannae, they meet the Roman cavalry and both dismounted to fight each other. After beating them, the cavalry then went on the pursuit, possibly after getting back on their horses. Just to clock in some overtime, they then swung around and routed the Roman cavalry on the other wing. Finally, it was them who shut the box on the Romans by completing the encirclement and attacking from the rear. Polybius reports that this was done by successive charges, but it's possible that some dismounted as well. This practice is mentioned at the Battle of the Ticinus, which was technically the first engagement between Hannibal and Rome and occurred in 218 BCE. It's sometimes referred to as a cavalry skirmish, but in his account, Polybius mentions how the cavalry fought both on foot and on horse. One of the effects of this was to tie down the Roman cavalry, which may have fought similarly, and this allowed the Numidian cavalry to pepper the Romans with javelins from behind, which caused them to rout. This engagement also supplied us with a nice anecdote whereby the Roman commander was rescued from death by his son. And that son was a young chap called Scipio, who would later lead the Roman counter against Hannibal and defeat him at Zama in 204 BCE. Though the flexibility of the Iberian cavalry was very useful for Hannibal, it makes our understanding of them a bit more difficult. If we knew, for example, that they always fought on horse, we could build a picture up of their weapons and armour. That they might operate as cavalry and infantry has funded a lot of speculation in this regard. It's been argued that there were two types of Iberian cavalry. The first was the light cavalry, which had a soldier who carried a shield, some javelins and a sword, the shield most likely being the Ketra. We wouldn't expect much in the way of body armour, by the way, so perhaps leather armour or just a tunic, and head protection would have been a bronze or leather helmet, again, perhaps like the Montefatino. This type of soldier appears similar to the infantrymen, in fact in many ways they're more or less identical. It would have given him the capacity therefore to engage on foot or on horse, and on that point it's worth remembering that these were cavalrymen who fought as infantry as opposed to the other way round. It might have been that they faced other cavalry who fought this way, or that it just offered them an advantage. 
the fact that they had this option, that they could fight on foot, shouldn't steal from our respect for them as highly skilled horsemen. The second type of cavalry was the heavy cavalry, which was purely for the purpose of fighting on horse. I've seen this cavalry unit cited as akin to the cataphracts, with mail armour and a heavy lance, and I should say, I'm not totally convinced that this type of cavalry was present in Hannibal's army, or even that it really ever existed. I think there was only one type of Iberian cavalry, and that this was the first type I mentioned. The Iberian cavalry was much needed. It allowed the Numidians to be a specialised unit, and gave Hannibal the sort of tactical applications he took full advantage of. And like the other troop types, the cavalry was very important off the battlefield, as well as on it. As we know, Hannibal clocked up the miles in his march, and any army doing so was vulnerable to raids or hit-and-run attacks as it made its way through foreign territory. The Iberian horse would have helped them to negate this, as well as provide a scouting option. There's even a political opportunity for them. We know that Hannibal raided the lands of Roman allies, and the reason for this was to show how effective Rome was. Numidian cavalry undertook this when Hannibal first arrived in northern Italy, but there's no reason to suppose the Iberian cavalry didn't assist or run these tasks as well. To sum up then, in 218 BCE, Hannibal descended the Alps and arrived in northern Italy. He had a force of around 20,000 infantry and 6,000 cavalry, which included the Iberian units I've just mentioned. This is where the story of Hannibal often starts, and his successes are charted from this point onwards. But this ignores what had gone before. It forgets the tough lessons and the campaigning. Those years in Iberia, where he was given a thorough testing in the arts of not only being a general in the field, but learning about logistics, diplomacy and strategy. Iberia was the place which made any of this possible. When I started researching this podcast, I knew it was influential. I just didn't realise to what extent. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to me going on about it. If you can leave a review or share this podcast with anyone you know who might like it, I'd be very grateful. I'm also very keen for feedback, so come and find me on Twitter, at Ancient Blogger, and say hi. Tell me what you like, and even what you didn't. I'm always looking to improve. Anyway, till next time, thanks again for listening, wherever in the world you are. Take care, and keep safe. Infamy! Infamy! They've all got it in for me!